0: Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar.
1: I tried to think, what is the most essential component in society? And I realized that even computing and the app industry and cell phones, all these things require energy. Why not start at one of the most essential components that really isn't going to shift based on trends, but
0: will remain constant? Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. When most people... Think of innovation and venture. The idea of venture capital comes to mind. And you think about investing in outside companies, raising a fund, deploying that capital, taking a carry. There's just a way that the venture model works. But there are some companies like today's guest, Eight Rivers, that have more of a venture studio approach. If you're unfamiliar with what that means, I think that you're going to enjoy the conversation that we have with the president of Eight Rivers right here in my hometown of Durham, North Carolina. Damien Beauchamp is a true entrepreneur. And the story of how he got to Eight Rivers itself is fascinating. From his own entrepreneurial ventures while studying and building his battery startup informed his lens on who are the great folks that I would want to work with. And when he met the founder of Eight Rivers, let's just say it was a natural fit. I got a chance to sit down with Damien Beauchamp in their Durham, North Carolina headquarters offices and really understand the core, the heart of the innovation behind their carbon capture company, NetPower, and the innovative and diverse team building approaches internally that have fostered the creativity and the activity inside of this very interesting and prolific venture studio that is called Eight Rivers. If you're new here to Suncast, I'm so grateful that you're giving us the one thing that you won't get back that's non renewable and it's your time. We're going to take care of it for you today. And if you like this kind of content, you are in the right place because Suncast has more than 650 such interviews with founders and leaders on the front lines of our clean energy transition so sit back enjoy and let us know what you think afterwards i hope that you really take value as i did from the entrepreneurial journey and spirit of mr damien beauchamp let's dig into another practical conversation here on suncast damien It is fantastic to have a chance to sit here with you in the Eight Rivers office, which I've never visited despite being a Durham resident.
1: No, it's wonderful to have you, and I appreciate it, Nico, and great
0: to have another sit down and discussion around what we're doing here at Eight Rivers. Likewise, man. I've been looking forward to this a long time, actually, notably because I have heard of, I'd say the two for me, and I'm sure this is different for a lot of different Durhamites who've spent time thinking about the clean energy sector, but there are kind of three companies that stand out. For me, one is the operation company of Strata. Everybody kind of knows Strata and they've done a great job of uh, building out um, a a niche for themselves as an EPC and now an IPP. SJF um, has done a great job from a venture perspective investing in companies like uh, Next Tracker. And then there's this other sort of lore around this company, Eight Rivers, Hmm. and Bill and the team that has put together $2 billion worth of market value. And I don't hear folks talk about eight rivers uh, in quite the same way as Strata and SJF. It's kind of like folks are not sure right where to put it. So how do you describe the problem at a macro level that you all have created eight rivers to solve? You know,
1: eight rivers was really founded upon the premise of solving large industrial scale innovations, stuff that typical VCs and and PE funds weren't really going after. Um, so it's the more capital-intensive innovation that, that we've been focused on. Um, and that kind of focus and, and, and thesis really started to more center in on the energy transition and reducing emissions. Yeah. So we're focused on industrial innovation at large scale, and the North Star for us is around reducing emissions from all processes, from heavy industry to power uh, and even transportation.
0: So for those who are unfamiliar then with Eight Rivers as an organization, introduce us then to Eight Rivers and why the vehicle that's been created that we call Eight Rivers is intended to address the problem you just enunciated.
1: The company overall was, was founded to do this because there, there was nobody else doing it in the space.
0: Yeah, um, and, and when you say yeah. it, it is investment. It, how, how do you characterize it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the model here at A-Rivers is that instead of investing in outside technologies, uh, we chose to use our own kind of brainpower and resource and expertise to develop solutions that we heard the market was looking for, right? We heard carbon capture was too expensive. Uh, and so we went uh, about designing new processes rather than purely retrofitting Got it. Uh, existing yeah. systems. Uh, so we designed new processes to do and produce the things that they they produce today. Yeah. But then inherently put the
0: constraint on the system that it has
1: to capture all the CO two.
0: Is it fair to say for those who are familiar with Idea Lab that Eight Rivers is like the Idea Lab of the East? I
1: I, I think that could be accurate. I'd say we were, we're the Idea Lab uh, of the East, but with a very climate and and emissions reduction focus. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Yep. Got it. So taking the model of, uh, I, and again, I'm just trying to help folks wrap their head around how Eight Rivers functions. And the, the only one that comes to mind when you say like there's not one, the one that comes to mind that's sort of analogous is, is Idealab, where Bill Gross, uh, instead of investing in other companies, famously has invested in hundreds of ideas that came out of his or his executive team's heads, which have been across the board in tech, not not exclusively to climate. And what I hear you saying is Eight Rivers is doing that, innovating with the team internally, but specifically towards climate tech, specifically towards reducing emissions. Correct. Fantastic. Correct. Okay. The name Eight Rivers, where'd that come from?
1: Yeah. So a lot of our processes actually have CO2 looping throughout the systems. Okay. And so the eight, kind of represents that, that looping nature sure. that's within most of our systems. And also, um, you know, eight is infinity stood up, and that kind of symbolizes the, the significant task ahead. You know, it's not easy to innovate uh, industrial-scale t- technologies. Right. Um, and so that's a, that's a very large task. And then the rivers represents the persistence of a river, and through its persistence can carve canyon and rock, but also doesn't flight, fight its natural flow. Um, and for us, we're not working to fight what the market uh, needs. We're not trying to develop solutions that are in our own heads. We're motivated by the market and finding solutions that are both practical from a technical perspective, as well as practical and pragmatic from an economic perspective. And so kind of what I like to say um, is, is infinite persistence is really what, what is required to achieve the energy transition and ultimately net zero.
0: Perfect. Speaking of net zero, uh, one of the first innovations or investments through Eight Rivers was a company, Net Power. Could you walk us through some of the early stages or milestones that represent for you success or proof points that the original idea and the evolution of the idea by Bill and the co-founders um, is working for Eight Rivers? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, the allen fet cycle, the Net Power technology really started uh, on on just a blank sheet approach of how would you redesign a power plant if you had to inherently capture all the CO2? Um, and through that process, there were many iterations of the cycle. There was a lot of conversation with market experts, large utilities, you know, EPC, large engineering companies and yeah. things. And, and there was a lot of feedback that was given through that process And there was a lot of learning and a lot of recommendations that the team uh, at that time took and applied to the system and ultimately perfected that. Now, the, the perfection of the system wasn't only from a technical perspective, but also had to constantly be conscious of the economic outcomes of the technical changes that were being made along the way. Right. So where things would yield higher performance, They would give higher capex and so it was really a balance between that and i think we found a good balance Um, and that total value proposition is really what brought uh, a lot of the partners that came into netpower uh, and joined uh, eight rivers uh, who ultimately is the corporate founder uh, in that journey and now you know netpower super successful it's got its own separate team. Yeah. It's got a, a separate CEO. It's got its yeah. board and, and it's, it's went separate, public. It's,
0: it's exactly. It's a public company. This yeah. is what, this is for me the correlation with Idea Labs because it's one thing to invest in a company as a venture firm, but the success of A Rivers is in launching and standing these companies up to become public firms, to have acquisition um, sort of strategic exits, which of course venture firms do, but they're not incubated the way that they are here at Eight Rivers. What other companies have come forth from the Eight Rivers ecosystem?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, our model at this point after Net Power is to really keep the technologies we develop in-house. Okay, We do look at partnering with external uh, carbon capture clean energy companies and ways that we can use our platform to help them be successful. Because ultimately, we're not about our own success. We're about the success of the energy transition. We're about achieving net zero. And if there are other organizations who we can help or who we can provide some of our learnings to, uh, we look to do that. But for the time being, Eight Rivers as an entity looks to hold its technologies in-house. We've got large partners now uh, that are supporting the deployment of those technologies. And so the whole concept of of spinning out separate entities isn't necessarily something we see as, as, as a requirement uh-huh. for our success going forward. I see.
0: How much total capital has Eight Rivers brought to the clean energy, uh, sort of the, to the approach to the capitalization of both the business of net power as well as the overarching stru- infrastructure for Eight Rivers?
1: Yeah. So when you look at the, the total platform of, of technologies that we've invented uh, and projects that we've created... Um, to date, there's been over $2 billion in capital deployed. Wow.
0: That's amazing. All from local Durham billionaires. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> we might be creating some of those. I, think, I hope so. I hope so. so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. That's,
0: a, that's a great story. We'll have to come back and, and, uh, and recapture that story as well. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100kW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Is it fair to say that uh, carbon capture is at the heart of most of the work that you're looking at?
1: Yeah, that's right. Right, Carbon capture is at the heart of it, but there's some other themes on on how we achieve that carbon capture okay. and how we achieve the efficiency in our systems. And so, um, one thing about hydrocarbons that's really interesting and fossil fuels in general, anything that has carbon and hydrogen, um, when you combust it in pure oxygen, in a, in a, in a straightforward reaction, you get CO2 and water yeah. as, as your products. Right. Um, the problem to date with the way that the world you know, utilizes hydrocarbons is that they're being burned with oxygen from the air. So oxygen from the air comes in. But with that oxygen comes a whole bunch of nitrogen. Right. So your CO2 and water that results from combustion is then mixed with a whole bunch of other gases. Right. And, and that's where you need a whole bunch of energy to fight the entropy. Right. right. Entropy is disorder. And to bring order to things, you always need to input energy. Think about cleaning your house, right? You, you need to put energy to keep things in order. And
0: so... It takes a lot of energy to clean my house.
1: Right. Mine too. I have two, I have two kids and, 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 and exactly, it's actually a great analogy, right? And if you, if you look at the back end of the system and you don't, you, you remove the requirement to fight that entropy, Yeah. you can get much better economics for a system that captures CO2. So what we do on the front end, going back to what's the common theme, it's oxycombustion on the front end yeah. in nearly all of our systems. Okay. So we're burning with pure oxygen instead of oxygen from the air. And then we can control the products that come out. Water, CO2. Water then drops out as a liquid. Yeah. uh, Or the steam component drops out as a liquid very easily. Um, And then the other common theme is heat recuperation. Uh Uh-huh. So we're all about energy efficiency and how we keep the heat in the system. Got it. And by doing that heat recuperation, you end up needing to burn less hydrocarbon.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So it's energy efficiency and then inherent carbon capture through oxy combustion. And when you think about direct air capture, one of the things I like to say is the way you get pure oxygen is you actually use a big refrigerator, essentially, to remove it from the air. And it turns out that it's cheaper to direct air capture oxygen as it is to direct air capture CO2. Got it. And so that's the bet that we've been making for Uh, a
0: long time. So you're direct air capturing oxygen. That's right. You're using the... The pure oxygen for the oxalytic process. Yep. And then you are able to extract the CO2 in that way. So in you're putting, form, right? So you're putting the extraction to a secondary use. Yep. Got it. Wow, that's really, that is a novel way to, to do that. How long has it taken to incubate that idea, as it were, uh, from, from when it first became a, a, an idea, a concept here to when you were able to put the factory in place in Texas? Uh, yeah. So, so or the so, power plant, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, net power. The idea was uh, developed in uh, 2009. Okay. And then uh, that facility came online in 2018. Okay. So from call it napkin to pilot facility in Laporte, Texas. That was, uh, you know, an 11-year process. Uh, so there was a lot that, that went into that or, or nine-year process.
0: Right. In the grand scheme of things, yeah. my understanding as well is the net power facility is that you, you said it was the second or the first largest piece of clean yeah. energy infrastructure? Built by a startup outside a startup. of SpaceX and the Falcon 9. That's amazing. And to do that in less than, a de- then less than 12 years, L- less SpaceX than a decade, surely took yeah. more than that. Yeah, <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, that is a phenomenal um, growth curve. Yeah, yeah. Net Power uh, as an entity has, has done a great job. So we're going to get into in a moment. Uh, I want to back out again to like thirty thousand feet and just talk a bit more about you, um, which we didn't get a chance to do in our first interview. Okay. And then I want to come back around to Eight Rivers, the innovation that you're working on, not just with Net Power, but what you're doing looking forward. But let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up, and and what what was the family environment like for you? And what I'm what I'm looking for here is not only how, what was the conversation like for you around the dinner table, but what were those early signs of Damien the entrepreneur, which clearly hmm. is a strong tendency for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, um, only child. So, so that was kind of the, the family dynamic, had right. a lot of focus on, mm. on myself. A lot of also, energy
0: towards Damien.
1: That's right. And I, was also, <laughs> <laughs> I was also the, the first, um, the first uh, nephew oh, wow. of, of all my... Um, you know, my aunts and uncles, gotcha. and then also the first grandchild on both sides of the family. Um, so, so there was a lot of attention, um, I would say for, uh, a lot of my early years. Um, and, and my dad, um, he started as a welder, but ultimately, uh, became his own boss, right? He, right. He's an entrepreneur, right? He started his own business. And was um, that
0: precipitated by losing a job? It was. Okay. It was. So, so welding Classic accident. Classic American story.
1: Right. Welding accident, smashed his thumb. Company didn't want to deal with the...
2: What?
0: Yeah. I didn't know this part of the story.
1: So company didn't want to deal with the, the, the medical expenses and, and the potential you know, down the road issues. And mm. so they, they found reasons to let him go, let him go. And uh, he, he threw all of his tools into a van and started a construction business. Um, just, just driving around and grew that into, into a meaningful business that really
0: took good care. Um, is that, is that from an early, of our family? Is that from like one of your earliest memories of your dad interacting in what we would call work? Yeah, I would say so.
1: I would say so in, in him doing that, you know, I would then, go with him. Okay. A lot of times at, at a young age sure. to, to job sites. Cleaning up the site. I, ex- I was, uh, my dad's was, a builder. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was the first job exactly. was to go pick up stuff. That's right. right. Um, and, yep. and, uh, and so did that for a while, but then also when I was young, I do have a distinct memory of, um, you know, I took a wagon and I filled it with a bunch of Rocks that I thought were really cool Uh looking—they really, in hindsight, were just river rocks, (laughs) just ordinary rocks. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like even probably chunks of asphalt that I thought. were them up in your backyard. Interesting, right? I proceeded to walk around the neighborhood, pulling this wagon, going up to doors, knocking on the doors, uh, and getting trying to get people to to sell rocks. Yeah. And I remember one time, and and maybe this started my my uh, my skill of not really caring too much. Uh, About getting told no. Yeah. Uh, But I knocked on the door of this older gentleman. Turns out he was an ex Vietnam vet and he lost his mind as as to why I was soliciting him to buy rocks. And I'm just like, I was probably like nine years old. So there's this little nine year old. (laughs) This dude's losing his mind. So I hightailed it out of there and it just continued on, though. Right. I just continued on.
0: Yeah. Uh, That's that's great. I I wish that I'm sure it's imprinted on your mind. As though you're a third person watching that image. And you're right. Those early moments can, they can settle in for you as fear or fearlessness, depending on the environment that you're surrounded in. Mom, also an entrepreneur or not so much?
1: No, no. um, More office-based work. So paralegal um, ultimately got into um, uh, county work, uh, you know, supporting kids that are in bad situations.
0: Yeah. Remember one of the times we were hanging out, you said that you were able to see the dichotomy between the frustration and the freedom of your mom's work and your dad's work. Yeah. Right? And yeah, not, that's not true. that entrepreneurship is free free is freedom in itself, but it's freeing in schedule.
1: Well, I forgot I talked about it, but that's it, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Do you do you consider then that you've always been sort of hard to tame in that regard? Yeah. 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 I, I explains yes. why you always yes. seek the top position. Um, yeah, and, and it's
1: not—it's not even so much the top position as it is a sense of autonomy and freedom. That's right, right? Yeah, I've—I've I've always had a boss here at Eight Rivers. I've always yeah. had somebody who is kind of directing things. Yeah, um, and I'm perfectly fine with that. And—and and it's more a how mm. uh, I've been directed. So, so when I'm directed with a sense of freedom, I find I perform
0: really, really well. So I know that you went into uh, university chemistry as a focus, very interested early on in clean energy. Hmm. I think it's really interesting given the history that I'd like you to explain about batteries and, and other technologies that you ended up sort of back in molecules um, and not in, not in chemistry. I mean, 10 years ago you were creating a battery company and now we're in an environment where that battery technology or company is, is, is sort of set to accelerate. Talk a bit about the direction that you originally sought for your career mm. and the ways that you interweaved, uh, entrepreneurship into that.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, started in physical therapy. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Okay. Um, wow. you know, I was big into bodybuilding back when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thought I was going to go into physical therapy, ended up getting a job, uh, in a pharmacy as a pharmacy technician, then decided I wanted to be a pharmacist. Yeah. Uh, then had to take some chemistry courses, took chemistry, realized I was good at it, realized I liked it a lot, especially organic chemistry. And um, ended up just going pure chemistry route because I didn't really want to become a pharmacist and realized counting 30, 60, and 90 was a skill that I mastered pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. and it didn't really present that many challenges for me. Yeah. Um, so, so went in the chemistry route. And the, the primary thing I saw in chemistry is that I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was still not sure, yeah, and instead of going the route of, say, like business or um, psychology or uh, you know, some of these other fields where people who aren't quite sure what they want to do end up going, I said, let me let me develop a skill set that's applicable to all aspects of society. So if I want to get into paint or I wanted to get into materials or I wanted to get into pharmaceuticals or wanted to get into energy, chemistry is a foundation when you don't know what you want to do offers you all opportunities. Yeah. And so that was the decision uh, for, for the chemistry piece. And then when I was in between uh, undergrad and grad school, uh, my professors who were kind of overseeing my uh, progress uh, through my undergrad, my advisors, they asked what I wanted to do after undergrad. Yeah. And I, I, Said you know go get a job and they were like well why don't you want to go to grad school and I said well I can't afford that right uh-huh. <laughs> um, and that's when they kind of explained to me the way the system worked about you oh, know you, paying yeah yeah you 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 can go for free wow. like chemistry grad students don't necessarily pay tuition they teach right uh, and that offsets the tuition and so when I found that out I you know that that seemed like a good value proposition for myself so decided to pursue that and before mm-hmm. I went to grad school at Ohio State University they asked me what I wanted to focus on and um, the focus was going to be CO2 conversion to value-added products and they said "Ooh, that's really hard mm-hmm. a lot of people have been trying to do that for a long time yeah we don't know if that's the best that's a really hard thing to do and so as I went into grad school I I knew I wanted to do something energy related yeah and energy was again a reason, or the choice for energy was because I still wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do ultimately. But it's
0: a big TAM. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And, and it's essential. I tried to think what is the most essential component wow. in society? And yeah. I realized that even computing and the app industry and cell phones, right. all these things require energy. That's right. And so, why not start? At, at one of the most essential components that yeah. really isn't going to shift based on trends but will remain constant,
0: what time frame is this two thousand five two thousand eight
1: <laughs> uh this was twelve. Twelve. that I okay. was going into grad school yeah okay
0: yep, okay, so you were going into grad school about the time that net power was going into like phase one of yeah. sort of technology innovation, right? That's
1: right. When um, the group here was, was doing their thing, yep, I was going
0: into grad school. Amazing. And when you got to grad school, started thinking about electrochemistry, started looking at the possibilities, yeah. what did you gravitate towards?
1: Uh, I ended up joining the only, like, purely energy-focused group that was really in the, in the whole chemistry department. Yeah. Um, and that was a group that was focusing on... Um, dye-sensitized solar cells. Yep. So a, a, a kind of somewhat, I, I would say, new. Um, it's new in its sense of commercialization. Yeah. It's relatively mature
0: in the field of research. It's only a handful of startups, all of which have failed. Yeah, yeah. Commercialized it, the product. The,
1: the dye-sensitized yeah. solar cell. That's right. Yeah. Almost
0: entirely for gov- government and army use.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, it, it suffers from stability issues right. and, and things like this. But, um, you know, found that very interesting. Um, so, so they did sensitized solar cells and battery mm-hmm. chemistry. Um, and then while I was there, we started getting into hydrogen yeah. uh, generation okay. from, from solar. And, and that was a really compelling group because I could do everything from organic an inorganic molecular synthesis uh-huh. to semiconductors to device fabrication yeah. to electrochemical testing of those devices and having that breadth uh, of exposure and experience, I thought was something that added more value to my skill set.
0: So, in grad school, you ultimately ended up starting not one but two companies. Two, yeah. yeah. Talk talk about the process of founding these two companies and. We'll ultimately get to why you're not running a company that you founded and you're at Eight Rivers. But tell me about these two companies.
1: The first company, which was based around batteries for stationary energy storage, um, that was developed as a result of my going to a conference, seeing a chemistry professor talk about how he had commercialized through his own companies some of the uh, creations that he developed in his lab with his Got grad it. students. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that was, that was when I knew what I wanted to do.
0: Got it. And what I really- Conferences have had a big impact on your life.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, th- this was like, a, um, this was the American Chemical Society's Renewable Energy and Green Chemistry Summer School. Okay. Um, at Colorado School of Mines. But that's when I realized, wait, if if I've built this skill set and I have this expertise to yeah. develop these new things- why do I want to give that to a company? Why, why shouldn't I hold the majority of the value of yeah. that, that that thing creates? Um, so I went back to my PI at PI Ohio State, uh, Principal Investigator okay. at, at Ohio State. And I said, you know, I want to take some entrepreneurial courses. Oh, well. He said, well, my grants won't cover that, you know, but there's plenty of opportunities on campus here. Go, go see if you can find some. And so I started looking around, found the Ohio State Business Plan Competition. Oh, yeah. Went there realized I needed an idea. We had this cool battery that was energy efficient from our lab and said, I'm going to start a company around that battery.
0: So you guys are testing an idea. Nobody else in the lab had the, the concept of like, this could be a business?
1: No, there, it, it's very rare, I think, uh, or was, r- was rare at the time Got it. for any, any technical person, at least in the chemistry department or even the chemical engineering school um, for that technical individual to go do entrepreneurship It takes ambition i was the first person at ohio state university's chemistry department to start a startup ever in the history of ohio state what yeah
0: that seems bombastic yeah (laughs) i I mean ohio state's well known as a business school yeah yeah
1: at least as a graduate student i know i was the first first one so surely there's alumni that have left and started but you mean from the school like spinning an ip out from the school Right, as a graduate student yeah, as yeah. well.
0: Yeah. As a student, not yeah. someone coming from the outside going, that looks interesting and, exactly. and, help, and like getting the rights to it, which is and, the most common way that these technologies get spun out.
1: And typically it's larger companies that are doing that, right? Yeah.
0: So they're coming in and licensing that. Yeah.
1: And so I found the business plan competition, um, didn't know a lot about business, turned out a lot of the business students didn't have any ideas for a business, and so they all gravitated towards. Oh, how cool. So I stood up in that first meeting, pitched it, they all came over and said, we want to be with you
0: so i leveraged their expertise and um, is it surprising for you as an as a young chemistry grad student the number of business students without an idea that they just they they actually are almost just as much like drones as your colleagues in the lab
1: yeah yeah it was it was very interesting and so that's when i realized that by by having a dual skill set like this yeah you 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 increase your your own value How even true. more
0: wow and so oh, yeah. i ended
1: up winning that ohio state business plan competition and went on to compete in a number uh both uh you know domestic and international business plan competitions um one most that i competed in um and and then i ended up getting tapped to do the joint safety committee for the chemistry department at uh-huh. ohio state so i was the the founding member of the joint safety committee tapped by the chair and Part of the whole impetus of that committee was to improve the safety culture at Ohio State University, reduce accidents. Got it. And it was through that that I identified chemical inventory right. and chemical waste as a problem that needed solving. Yeah. And we needed to look at systems to, uh,
0: you know, chemical waste in labs it, and chemical inventory. Got it. Okay. So,
1: what's on the shelves? Got it. Okay. Right? Yeah. And I realized that wasn't being tracked. Wow. Um, and, and that there were a lot of efficiencies and even sustainability targets that could be improved if you knew what chemicals all the different labs had at one time on one platform. Sure. But the problem with, with chemical inventory is that typically you have to print out a barcode, you have to buy the scanners, you have to buy the software, you have to print out a sticker, put it on every bottle. Because you can't get one manufacturer to print the same barcode on every bottle. Well, what I identified was that the Chemical Abstract Services number, or the CAS number, is a unique numerical identifier that every manufacturer, by law, has to print on the bottle.
0: Yeah, similar this is to an to, NDC, to the chemistry industry.
1: Yeah. It, it, yes. Uh, similar to an NDC or a national drug code. Got it. So every every drug bottle has an NDC on it. Right. And uh, I ended up receiving an award from Chemical Abstract Services as a future leader in chemistry. And when I was there receiving that award, there was another individual from Yale who received the same award and told him about this idea where if we could use a cell phone to identify the sequence of numbers on a bottle Mm. and read those numbers and link it to a database that you could do chemical inventory on an app on your phone. And it turns out that this individual had previously in high school— Done a whole bunch of visual recognition applications, which generated the CAPTCHAs for Google. No way. And others. And he went back to his room that night. He used open source code, developed the app, came down the next morning,
2: Oops.
1: showed me that it worked. What? We, I developed a pitch, and we were at, we had received this award from Chemical Abstract Services. 24 hours earlier. <laughs> and, but we were there for a week, and yeah. we had access to the executives. Yeah. So we put together a pitch. We filed a provisional patent. That week. That week. And then we went and pitched the, the leadership. And an interesting thing happened. They said, you know, we keep this registry of chemical abstract services numbers or CAS numbers yeah. for the entire world. Yeah. And we've tasked our team with, with trying to monetize that CAS registry. And nobody's come up with a solution. But it looks like that you guys have developed... solution here to do that in 48 hours yeah amazing well it took you know the whole process took a week sure
0: yeah uh well so that
1: was the second the the, when when you're a
0: grad student ta Mm -hmm. taking care of business trying to get a degree most people would consider that a full-time job when are you building these other two companies yeah so
1: a lot of the building occurred uh on saturdays and sundays and -hmm. then in the evenings yeah So, you know, research, writing papers, TA during the day. Yeah. In the evenings when I go home, I would work on these things. Sure. And then on the weekends, I would have the business students that were on my, were within the the care battery team. We would go meet at the business school on Saturdays and Sundays and practice pitching and putting together the decks. It was full on
0: for you. It was just like, so inside the box. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of that comes from, you know, in, in undergrad, um, because I had to pay my own way, right? I would go four months without a day off, right? I would right. be doing 18 to 20 hours of course credit during the week and then work three weeknights mm-hmm. and work Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And so there were periods where I would go in undergrad three or four months without taking any time off. So early on, you built that muscle. Exactly. So the muscle was built, and yeah. it wasn't a challenge when I was in grad school to just naturally
0: continue that habit. That muscle memory was there. Did you have folks uh, around you who would marvel at and say, wow, the willpower it must take, those kinds of things? Was that a common um, I refrain? I don't know. I don't know. No? I, I you didn't hear it, like?
1: I didn't, or, I didn't hear it too much. I mean, there was certainly some good recognition, but no, I didn't. Sure. I, I can't, I don't know that I heard Did that.
0: Did you try to surround yourself with specific kinds of people? I'm wondering, as a grad student, how you built the teams that took care of the work or, to avoid the need for you to feel like you're responsible for all of it.
1: For the startups, it was, it was relatively easy
2: mm-hmm.
0: because
1: what I find is, is people want, you know, especially business students, right, they, they love that idea of being on the ground floor of yeah. building a company. Mm-hmm. And so I think it offered them a lot of opportunity. Um, And I I did learn some challenges in in managing people and probably one of the hardest environments there is. And that is an environment where the people aren't getting paid anything. Yeah. Right. So like, how do you motivate and how do you maximize output from a group of people who are making zero money at that time? Right. And so that was interesting. And there were, there were even, there were periods where we just asked people not to come back. Right because they just weren't contributing, they weren't being consistent, and we whittled it down to a group of five or six of us that were consistently showing up uh, and getting the work done.
0: What did you identify in those five or six folks that, that, sh- that you would look back now and say, that's, what I, that's kind of, I didn't realize, but that's what I look for now in team members because I recognize that pattern matching.
1: Yeah. So work ethic is obviously a huge one, but... Mm-hmm. Typically, there needs to be some form of drive or motivating factor, some yeah. chip on their shoulder, yeah. uh, okay. on, on why they want to, you know, embrace that challenge and, and conquer it. Mm. Um,
0: how do you find that? How do you search? How do you? What question would illustrate that?
1: I think it's really about digging into uh, a person's, um, you know, history, their performance, where they come from. Mm. Not even performance in, in companies, but yeah. how did you grow up? Gotcha. Where did you come from? Uh-huh. How did you get to where you're at? Yeah. Why did you make the decisions that you made? Digging into those types of things. Um, and then there's just a, a personal integrity uh, that, that some people carry and becomes very present. Mm-hmm. And when you can identify that early, those are all you know. that's also another key trait uh, yeah. that I think is important. And then interpersonal skills. So the ability to interact with other people is important. And, and where that skill set might be lacking, um, I think that can be more than made up with, like, a particular expertise in a field, right? Because not all the people on the team were extroverts, right? right? But they were extremely consistent in not only their delivery, uh, but also in the results and the quality of what yeah. they
0: delivered. So I mentioned that conferences have had a big impact on your life at some point as a grad student. Um, you were able to build and sell uh, one, at least one of the companies, the battery company. The other uh, company, which you developed with Stafford, also got sold, the visual recognition company?
1: Yeah, ultimately, the the chemical abstract services yeah. kind of took that IP and, gotcha. and, and we kind of put that on a shelf because staff and, and myself both had other things we were focused on. Uh-huh. The battery company was my primary focus, and then I had research, and then, Staff was doing something called Catalytic Innovations, yeah, which has now become Airco Air Company, yeah, Air Company. And so he's he's been really successful with that, and they're taking yeah. CO two and converting it to value-added products, How cool. solvents, sustainable aviation fuel, hand sanitizer, yeah, perfumes, um, all these kinds of things. And and they're out in Brooklyn, and and they've had a tremendous amount of success. But yeah, uh,
0: yeah. so you find yourself at a Fortune conference, yeah. And
1: yeah, so, yeah, um, through the battery startup, ended up uh, featured in Fortune magazine and uh, was at a Fortune conference. And I remember entering the conference and thinking, maybe this is the place I find my next opportunity. Because there were some frustrations around the startup. I very quickly learned what the meaning of conflict of interest is. Okay. You know, when your PI is your co-founder.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, there's some there's this, self-preservation. Some significant leverage uh, that, you know. Uh, that situation presents sure for one of the parties, mm-hmm. and and so there was some frustration there, and so I was looking for my next opportunity. And when I arrived at the the conference, I I distinctly remember getting there before everybody else into the venue and thinking maybe this is where I find my next opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Ended up doing the presentation and the pitch. Ended up sitting next down to uh, sitting down next to uh, Bill Brown, who was the who is the co-founder of of Eight Rivers yeah. and. Just striking up a conversation and yeah. ended up coming out here to Durham.
0: So Bill says, smart young guy. Why don't you come visit us in Durham, right? That's right. So you hop on a plane. Did he pay for the flight? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so he they, goes, hey, yeah. buy you a ticket. Come down to Durham, meet my team. Yeah. Love like We can share ideas, right? Yeah. At what point did you realize that it was more than just a come-meet-Bill's fantastic company?
1: I'm um, At about 1 p.m., <laughs> so I, I arrived at the office around 8.30. Yeah. And by 1 p.m., I realized that perhaps I was being interviewed. So, okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, did it change your demeanor in any way?
1: <laughs> I think it did, Yeah, certainly. Okay. I was much looser, charismatic, I would say, yeah. in, in the first couple hours of that day.
0: And I remember that you said that the thing that struck you that day was— just the audacity of the vision for Eight Rivers. Put us in that place. What was audacious? What did, uh, what was so compelling after mm. eight hours with the team here that you knew immediately, like, this is where I want to go?
1: The big thing that struck me was the, the scale of the innovation that was happening. Okay. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what the company was. Mm. Like, I thought it was an incubator, which I did not want to be a part of. Right. Like, your typical like Y Combinator incubator, there's right. this thing called Rev1 Ventures mm-hmm. in Columbus. Like, you know, I'm more of a free markets kind of person. And, yeah. and I, don't, I don't necessarily believe in the incubator idea. Yeah. Like if you're going to build a company, the company should present a value proposition such that there's market reception for what the company is doing. And I I feel like in some incubator context, and sure, Y Combinator has spun out some really good stuff. um, But to a certain degree, the best companies um, I think survive uh, when when they have to struggle um, and go through those growing pains. Right. And and if there isn't a good product market fit uh, or not a strong value proposition that ultimately the markets will will figure that out. Yeah, um, And so that's that. So I really didn't want to join an incubator, realized it wasn't an incubator, realized there was a diverse set of uh, interests and technologies being pursued. Uh, since then, we've gotten much more focused, right, into just carbon capture. But at mm-hmm. the time, there was, there was space launch, there was telecom, there was the power plant. Um, and it just really felt like a place where one's, intellectual and entrepreneurial um desires Mm -hmm. had the freedom to explore new opportunity and and that was really compelling for me
0: if it's possible to distill is there a special sauce that you have either discovered here or helped create that is eight rivers unique
1: yeah i I think the 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 special there's a lot of ingredients in the special sauce but um I think, you know, the core thing is allowing people to explore
0: mm. and fail. Okay.
1: And, and not having a construct that's overly punishing, uh, in, in, in those circumstances. So it is
0: punishing, but not overly punishing.
1: Yes. Okay. That's right. I mean, it's always, you know, <laughs> if you spend a lot of time on a new idea, yeah. right. That, and then, and then yeah. it doesn't get, move forward sure. or a project and it doesn't move forward that there, there is a punishing aspect of that.
0: Beyond the psychosomatic punishment. Yeah, that's right. Is, um, is not there, yeah. there an example that stands out to you of someone like you're particularly proud of the effort that was nevertheless a failure?
1: So one example of, of where there was a technology that was developed, but there really wasn't a good market match, or there were technical problems with it, um, you know, we, we had this system uh, called Carbonate, and it was going to be kind of a, a post-combustion CO2 capturing system. Uh-huh. And just through that, as we developed it, we started to learn things about the supply chain, about materials handling. Right. And, and we just, we, we realized that it, it really wouldn't make sense technically. It wouldn't, especially wouldn't make sense economically. And so that's one where we, we set that aside. Got it. But out of that, out of that learning from carbonate and the basis of what it was doing was calcite. Calcite. So calcite ultimately kind of came out of some of the technical learnings. Okay. Um, and, and calcite is our direct air capture technology. Right. Um, this
0: is that refrigeration technology that it's different
1: it's different okay Uh, so this one isn't doing the oxygen so those are air separation units this one's pulling co2 out of the atmosphere okay so this is the one that won the uh DAC hub okay DOE direct air capture hub grant um
0: how much is that grant uh total was 20 million 20 million yeah for winning or the whole grant process um,
1: for for the southeast direct air capture hub was twenty million, yeah. Wow,
0: and you all the won. overall
1: grant process I think was closer to two billion in total awards. Yeah,
0: goodness gracious. So, A yeah. Rivers and Calcite won the southeast DAC hub prize for grant of twenty million. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's phenomenal. Yep. That's uh, that's a big step up from uh, your your early battery startup at Ohio State. It is, right? certainly, yes. Goodness gracious. Is there a methodology developed or cultivated within eight rivers that helps to, uh, I mean, because I have to assume through the, through the failure process, calcite is born, there must be some internal process of evaluation. There's something that you've developed that allows for, for gleaning those insights.
1: Yeah. So the ideation really comes from problem statements or issues that we identify in the market with clients. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, we have a lot of natural gas that's has a lot of H2S in it and sour, so we can't produce it, uh, to direct air capture is really expensive. Well, why is that? And mm-hmm. what are the things to focus on to, to drive the cost down, um, to, um, you know, how do you improve um, the energy efficiency as well as the carbon capture rate for hydrogen generation, uh, as well as remove certain supply chain constraints that exist for some of the hydrogen generation technology that exists today in the market. Um, so we always are focused on market problems, customer problems, and then working to develop solutions internally that address those problems. Yeah. And the way that we develop the solutions internally is not to hand the problem to a domain expert. So we don't just find somebody who has 10, 20 years experience and just let them develop the solution. We allow people with diverse educational backgrounds, diverse cultural backgrounds come together and, and look at the problem and, and kind of work uh, around that problem and, and, and play with it a bit to, to see what comes out. Then if there's a viable solution, we then put it through a bit of technical challenging to, yeah. to ensure that the technical viability is yeah. there. And then very quick, uh, after we've got kind of a, the, the system set, yeah. we then go work on the economics. And, and we're very rigorous to determine if it makes financial sense.
0: In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey friends, I have a proposition for you. Instead of freezing your tail off like I am here in North Carolina, why don't you jump on a plane Come to San Diego, January 17th to 19th and hang out with us at InterSolar, InterSolar North America and Energy Storage North America. As you're probably aware, one of the premier U.S.-based trade show and conferences focused on solar, energy storage, and EV charging infrastructure. Suncast listeners can get free access to the expo hall by using the code SUNCAST at intersolar.us. That code will also get you 20% off your conference. Pass to learn, connect, and conduct business with the most innovative companies in the solar and energy storage business. Go to Intersolar.us, use the code Suncast. And hey, don't forget to stick around all the way through Friday because yours truly may be on stage at the Solar Games. Come check it out. See you in San Diego. So we're at 30,000 feet. I want to take it to like 5,000 feet. Yep. Yeah. So we don't bring in a domain expert, but rather we take it to a diverse team. Is this like a one-day charrette? Is this a virtual or an in-office thing? Can you really bring it brass tacks of like how 8Rivers approaches this, like this specific activity?
1: Yeah. So that's the thing about innovation, right? There isn't a direct process. Okay. This goes back to the rivers, right? And this is why so many big companies fail at innovation, because so many big companies want to force process yeah. into everything that they do. They want a template. They want a template and mm-hmm. they want to know this step, that step, this That's step, right. that step. Innovation is needs to have some structure, but also needs to be very fluid. Yeah. yeah? And and the timelines in which we innovate aren't necessarily forced. Um, so you know, we do have primary things that we are focused on here at Eight Rivers. But then there's some extra time, and the kind of people that we hire are uh, ambitious enough that once primary tasks are taken care of, they're free to spend some of their time focusing Mm -hmm. on that innovation, and so they'll tinker around with it for a bit. Calcite's a great example of that, right? So Adam Goff, who was kind of the ideator and inventor on Calcite, you know, his background is, is government relations, like Okay. no technical background whatsoever. Okay. Right. And so he starts digging in and throwing this concept out and he's throwing it to people who have technical backgrounds. So at that time mm-hmm. it was, it was Adam, it was myself, it was Jeremy Fetvet, uh, who's on the alum Fetvet cycle. Uh-huh. Um, and, and we just started tossing that around amongst ourselves and just kind of said, I said, yeah, the chemistry will work. And then on the mechanical side, like how you actually implement it, Jeremy had a lot of input uh, because that's his background. And then Adam just took those inputs and further developed the system and really spent – he spent the most time kind of developing that system of everybody at the company um, and then took it not only from the technical aspects, but then started running it through the Carbon X wow. Uh, which we won the first phase of that, uh, did the testing – at his house using his oven no way. <laughs> to see if this was going to work. <laughs> so when, when I talk about the kind of people that we hire, right. these are the kind of people that when the day is done here in the office, yeah. still have so much curiosity mm-hmm. that they go home and they tinker and they, they, you know, they're looking at the problem and they're, they're trying to solve it because it's an intellectual challenge. And ultimately, you know, that won the X Prize, then it won the first round of carbon removal credits from the Frontier Fund was a consortium of Google and McKinsey and Meta and Shopify. And then ultimately, uh, you know, we won the Southeast DAC Hub first phase as well. Amazing.
0: Yep. So I wanna bring it back to this concept of a business isn't built on ideas, it's really built around people and talent is the core contributory factor. Um, it's the currency that ideas are built on, right? Um, hmm. <laughs> there's, you also have said that uh, idea, or was it the previous, the original CEO um, or, the, or the fellow that was the original CEO, that ideas without execution is the sound of one hand clapping? Yeah, so that was, yep, Cam. Yep. <laughs> Cam, uh, the first CEO. So you have to have execution, which means you have to have a good team. You all have grown, if I'm correct, I think uh, James said that it's 265%. In the last year, um, mm. how many people does that represent?
1: Yeah, so we went from roughly, call it 15 to 18 uh, to around 75 at yeah. this point.
0: Yeah. yeah. What does the recruitment process look like for an organization like Eight Rivers to, to scale that quickly when you're actually solving, it's not a software business. Yeah. It's, you're solving actual physical problems. In the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's this new phase that we're in now. Um, we're we're obviously keeping our innovative DNA within the company. Yeah. Um, but to the point of you know innovation without execution is the sound of one hand clapping, which is something Cam used to say. We really needed to start focusing on getting domain experts who could execute. Because uh-huh. if we don't build anything right? We just become this shop, this idea shop, Yeah. right? And so we're very much focused on execution now. Um, at the same time, we're looking for individuals who have that grit, uh, who have that determination, who have that chip on their shoulder and have a natural curiosity, mm. um, who are good at teaching themselves uh, uh, new things. Yeah. Um, so that is the core skill set. But then layer on top of that, like we want the core expertise to execute on projects. So we need specific process engineers that are very good at things. We need uh, finance uh, individuals who are very good at things. We need legal that's very good um, and focused, uh, understands, you know, contracts on large projects and things like this. And so the recruitment process now is we can very much give a specific skill set that we're on the lookout Mm -hmm. for. Um, And then we leverage recruiting firms. Uh Um, We now have something new here at Eight Rivers, which we hadn't had for a very long time. I think it's only maybe two years or a year and a half old, and that's an HR department. Okay. Um, And so, you know, we leverage those recruiting firms. And then, um, you know, obviously, HR is running that process. But then the interview process, we try to get a diverse set of skill sets
0: internally interviewing each person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, more than one or two folks are interviewing. Absolutely. Are you always the final interviewer? Five or, or are six. Or your wife? Um, no, no. I,
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not always the final interviewer.
0: No, no. not at all. No. Yeah, some organizations are built that way. It's that, like first few levels come through sort of domain expertise, and then the executive responsible for hiring is the last line yeah. of defense. Yeah, right?
1: that's right. And we do have different people over different departments, sure. and that will typically be... Um, you know, Are certainly
0: there, within the process. Have you had as a team uh, organizational conversations about what to solve for, what you're looking for? Like you have to have these skills. That's There's actually relatively tried and true tech, uh, ways to find out if the person is, you know, going to tick the boxes. Yep. But then there's cultural fit. How do you approach yeah. that and making sure that the whole team understands the cultural fit and uh, narrative and aspect that's important?
1: Yeah, I think on the, on the cultural fit and the personal temperament, that is something that, um, you know, Megan Coley in HR really focused on, uh-huh. um, and that's where their expertise. That's that's one of their expertise,s and it's certainly not not mine to be able to test whether a person is a is a is a cultural fit. I mean, the best thing I could ask a person about cultural fit is if they're okay with the. A degree of ambiguity. Oh, yeah. Uh, and well, that's a good question. A, yeah, exactly. And, and the ability to operate in a system that doesn't have an overly burdened process.
0: I'm always curious how you find out someone's, like, the grit. Like you said, that chip on their shoulder. and Yeah. What, you know, as, as even with a small team, I think that that's one of those things for us that it's hard to identify. And sometimes you feel lucky. But there, there have to be ways, and I keep searching for it, right? By asking folks like you, like, are there good questions or frameworks that help identify that chip on the shoulder? Someone who's willing to work extra hours um, and and not and, and not count the cost, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Because those are the folks that, in a startup world, are going to rise to the top and become executives and and execute on the innovation.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think again, it goes back to. Understanding a person's background, how they got mm. to where they got, how hard did they That's have right. to fight, um, how much effort did they have to put in for for new graduates, I mean, one of the best things I could say for people coming out of universities is to, to volunteer your time and get involved in, in multiple things. Right. Um, and, and try to demonstrate your leadership through those things. That's right. And because your like, curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Like on a resume, you can see somebody who's gonna put in a little bit extra effort based on yeah. At least, you know, for those, those near-term graduates, what they, what they did during their time at, at university, either undergrad or grad or both. I'm always very attracted to uh, individuals that I've seen, like, step out and try and start their own thing. Yeah. Like, I, that demonstrates a, a particular set of characteristics and a mindset. So sometimes people don't want to hire us.
0: entrepreneurial-minded people because they're afraid they're going to leave, right? They're afraid yeah. they're, they're, they're short-term thinking. Yeah. And they don't dig their heels in.
1: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think it really matters. You know, there's a particular personality for those individuals. Yeah, and if you can give them the, f- the, the sense of freedom to operate, mm, they that really, autonomy, they, they might, they might just stick around for yeah. for a good bit of time. And I would say we have a number of individuals, um, who who have that entrepreneurial mindset who who have stuck around for quite some time.
0: So. One of the conversations that we got into in our, first con- in our first interview was around how you see that Eight Rivers is bridging the gap between what we call traditional or fossil fuel energy mm-hmm. and you know, molecule-based energy and renewable energy and renewable technology, and in particular, hiring from traditional fossil fuel-based companies. What trends are you seeing right now in skills or skills gap and how you guys are filling roles with folks that are, I would say, non-traditional for clean energy company?
1: Given how unique our focus is, Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of people from larger traditional industries, be it an EPC, engineering procurement construction company, that's like a company that builds large power plants or refineries or desalination or anything like this, um, to water treatment, to oil and gas companies, they're yearning to take the experience and the expertise that they've developed in that industry and apply it in new and innovative ways yeah. in places where when they have an idea, e- even, even if you take it to, to even the level of like supply chain management, right? In a large company, you might see 15 different ways to improve the supply chain process but you can't get it approved and you can't get them yeah. to agree. Where when you look at Eight Rivers, you look at, wow, they're, they're doing the type of procurement activities that I know how to do. And in fact, if I could take my expertise and my ideas, I'll be allowed to apply them there. Yeah. And I can actually see how much more efficient that process is. And then we as a company benefit from that. Right. And then I think the other big benefit is that Because we're not a legacy oil and gas or fossil company, a lot of the people in those industries see opportunity for growth while still leveraging their core skill set. Now, as far as gaps are concerned, this has been a topic that I've been speaking about for the past two months, actually. And that's centered around petroleum engineers, reservoir engineers, surveyors, permitters, like those skill sets are on the decline. Right. Um, There's a significant reduction in petroleum engineer graduates coming out of Texas A&M, which is one of the best schools for petroleum engineering. And and this is really concerning because when you think about the energy transition uh, and you think about removing CO2 from the atmosphere or capturing it on the back end of a process, at the end of the day, you need to move that molecule. You need to move those CO2 molecules. Right. And when you look at industries who have the expertise to Move molecules, deal with the subsurface. The oil and gas industry has that in spades. That's right. Right, and so leveraging that skill set um, is critical. But what we're hearing now is that technology's ready. So yeah. people are are stopping the argument about oh, technology's too early stage. I I would I've I've heard a resounding technology's ready. We're seeing large investments in these technology companies. Right. The, the next thing that needs solving is the permitting process for yes. pipelines or classic swells for storage or even building a project. The permitting process for that is, is very lengthy. So if we're going to achieve scale quickly, we need a faster permitting process. And I think the government has heard that. And I think that there is real effort being put behind accelerating those things. But then with those two things achieved, yeah. as we start to build, we run into a problem that we don't have the skills that yeah. we need to achieve the scale and, and the speed of yeah. execution. And so I think that really, what, what, and that's what I think is so great about your, your podcast, right? And the fact that you've reached out is because we really need all of the skill sets, all of the tools, yeah. solar, wind, carbon capture, Coming together. That's right. Because we've had decades of deployment yeah. of a lot of renewable technology, and that has made a huge dent in the overall energy mix. Yep. But we need more because yep. the CO2 continues to increase. That's right.
0: Despite the fact that we've had record deployment.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, and so bringing all these skill sets together and developing projects where there's, you know, I, I see in the future projects that are leveraging the intermittency of solar. To maximize solar's value in an industrial process Mm -hmm. that captures the CO2 as well as leveraging wind and bringing all those resources together to produce, you know, sustainable fuels, sustainable materials, zero emissions electricity. You can, it's really interesting how you can, when you have a large sink for power, a large demand for power in Mm -hmm. a large industrial facility, Mm -hmm. how you can shift that, that solar power in and out of that project, as opposed to taking power from a more emissions intensive grid. Right. Um, and so, so there's, there's interesting efficiencies that can be realized by bringing these th- things together. Yeah. And another example, just to, just to touch on this more is like all of our processes, as I said, use oxygen. Right. Right. Now, just for the technical listeners right uh of the podcast i do understand that the scale of the oxygen that we need is significant yeah so i'll say that before i say what i'm about to say and that is when you look at like a a solar panel or windmills driving electrolysis yeah to generate hydrogen today they vent all that oxygen they vent it they vent the
0: oxygen oh this is the the equivalent of a of a, a oil well flaring
1: yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> but so you have this you have this resource, yeah, this addition, expensive resource. Additional revenue stream in addition to selling the hydrogen, yeah. where we could take that oxygen into our systems. The hydrocarbons being used today, anyways. Yeah. We're saying use it smarter and cleaner. So we could take that renewable oxygen, do the combustion, capture the CO2 in pure form at lower cost, and then sequester it. And so when you, when you play this out to the limit, as systems grow and build, there's a lot of, of synergy and overlap sure. and efficiency that can be realized. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And for those that would say, like the scale of oxygen we need is much bigger than that, that's the equivalent of saying, well, it's not valuable to that one starfish that we threw back in the ocean, right? All of these stack and layers uh, to achieve what we want to achieve. Agreed. I think that there's something to the notion of strong opinions loosely held. I'm curious where in the course of your time at A-Rivers where you naturally have to have a position on a hypothesis or you have a position on a market where, when presented with data, you've changed your mind?
1: Yeah. So uh, that happens often. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that I try to practice and one of the things I talk about is this concept of suspending your disbelief. Okay. Um, and it really centers around taking your biases off the, t- like identifying what your biases are yeah. and taking them off the table. Okay. Um, and then listening to the facts that are, are presented. Yeah. Um, and making decisions based on that. And so, you know, there, there are certain technologies or projects that, you know, myself or any other individual here will will be partial to, right? Maybe they've put a lot of their time into that thing. Um, but one of the core features about Eight Rivers and one of the things that we're continuing to work to build into our culture is the ability to look at the technology or the project for its merits on performance, technically, viability from a supply chain perspective, market reception for the solution as well as the economics. And if any of those things don't match uh, or don't look to make sense to not pursue the technology or the project Mm -hmm. for the technology or project on its own, right? right? It, It has to have the appropriate attributes
0: to pursue that thing. As you survey the landscape of innovators presently tackling emissions reduction broadly, who's impressive to you?
1: One of the most impressive groups that I don't think many people know about um, is this group up in Alberta, uh, Canada, uh, in, in, um, in the Edmonton region. Mm-hmm. There's a company called Northwest Refining, and it's run by this guy, Ian McGregor. Okay. Um, And Ian is an engineer, technical guy with an entrepreneurial fire to build stuff that I've, like, I've never seen. Uh Um, And he's one of those people where when you meet him, you just, you can feel feel the energy, the the passion, and the inherent persistence Uh uh, that he carries. And his group developed this thing called the Sturgeon Refinery in Edmonton. And this was the first refinery that had inherent carbon capture built in. Okay. He also worked to develop the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line, which is this huge 10 million ton capacity CO2 pipeline going from northern Alberta to the south. And then, you know, sequesters the CO2 um, and actually got that project done as well. Um, there are probably others, but the impressive thing that I found out recently is that Ian and the companies that he's created are responsible for capturing 10% of all anthropogenic CO2 on the planet right now. What? Of all anthropogenic CO2 that is captured, they're doing 10% of it.
0: Thank you, Ian. Yeah. Holy huge. Smokes. huge. That is quite a statistic. Yeah. Yeah, that is impressive. Thank you. That qualifies. Yeah, That's amazing. <laughs> uh, as you think about the time uh, launching your own two firms and working on getting net power to go public or other products like Calcite, are there any particular salient lessons or takeaways either that you've learned and you pass along or maybe Bill or other mentors have given to you that really sit for you as these sort of catalytic moments and ideas that help you as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, maximizing diversity and optionality is huge. Okay. So so when innovating, you don't know exactly which partners, which companies, which groups are are going to buy into the vision and yeah. and, and, and see the challenge ahead and be willing to embrace that challenge. Um, so it's very important to to build cultivate. Uh, and maintain really a, a number of relationships. Yeah. Um, so, so that's core Um. and, and not, not deciding in your own head what the best path is, yeah. but really going into the market with an open mind um, and a desire to uh, explore the possibilities, ultimately find and discover um who are the best partners for a project or technology? And there there are lots of different attributes that, that make for a good strategic partner. But at the end of the day, the the core characteristic is their willingness and belief in the vision.
2: Because <laughs> yeah.
1: even if they have the strategic pieces in place to make the technology successful, if they don't believe in it, yeah. um, then it's really not going to go anywhere. I would say the other thing that's that's very important is to know how to kill an idea. Yeah. Uh, or a program or a thing that you're pursuing. Yeah. Yeah. Saying no Mm. stopping something.
0: Actually, I'm glad that you, that's your second point, because I think that a key to leadership is being able to make tough, tough decisions often before you feel ready to. Yeah. Um, is there an example that you could point to where you've had to do that?
1: Um, yeah, so so there's a number of technologies that we chose to not pursue. Yeah. Um, at least over the past, you know, seven to eight years that mm-hmm. have been previously developed. Um, and there's lots of uh examples of projects and opportunities that a yeah. Rivers worked on, uh, where we stopped. Like for example, right, in the in the parking decks all around ATC here. Yeah. That was all Eight Rivers technology that controlled all those parking decks.
0: What does it control?
1: Um, so the gates, oh, so okay. for going in and out. Oh, yeah. So these were all systems developed by Eight Rivers, and we thought there was a big business in parking huh. back in the day, and in fact there there is. Yeah, um, and Happy more enough. and more apps are coming out yeah. uh, to you know produce efficiencies in in parking systems. But one, I think we were a bit too early in that. Yeah. And then as we started to understand the economic model of that, we un- we we didn't believe it could really scale gotcha. uh, at least to match our ambition. And so that's one where deployed that first set and then stopped. And then as we look at the portfolio today, we're actually being very critical in looking at the different technologies and saying at what point are we going to say stop? Right. And we're trying to predetermine that it now. Yeah, okay. yeah we're, we're trying to predetermine oh, that is super the fascinating. stop point.
0: Yeah. As we turn towards home base here, I want to dig a little bit into your personal habits, in particular, kind of the way that you organize your day and how you think about personal development. So I'll start with the latter first. I believe that leaders are readers, and books for me are a way to tap into collective wisdom that's been passed down through the ages, so I don't have to relive that experience mm. in, in order to incorporate it into my learning. Is there a book or two that you either gift routinely or recommend routinely because they've had an impact on you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the energy space and to understand the way the world works there's' there's, um, there's a lot of material that's been developed by uh, Dan Jurgen, yeah. which, which I think is 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 fascinating, and then outside of that, uh, I, I can't say that I gift. Uh, too many books um, what's, the la-
0: what's the last book you read
1: um, well the the new map uh, the new map the new map was a was a very good one by okay. by Dan Jurgen, and that's right. one that uh, some people around here uh, this guy will that I work with uh, he and I both quite enjoyed that cool um,
0: the new map all right yeah, I, yeah. I love that you're referencing someone that not a lot of folks in the renewable sector are going to recognize, but he's a freaking superstar in that's, the oil and gas sector.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's I mean, right.
0: super well known. Yep. Basically, runs the whole of Sarah Week. He's like on stage all week long. That's right. I aspire. For those who who don't know, like I aspire. Dan Jurgen is my north star. Like, if I could map my career to one person, yeah, it'd be Dan Jurgen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Very cool I dude. I don't. I don't fashion myself much of a writer. Yeah. But um. But he has sort of built his career on writing. Um, so maybe I got to work on that. Huh. <laughs> um, is there a specific morning or evening routine, a ritual that sets you up for success?
1: In the evenings, I, I typically like to dig into uh, the financial times. Okay. Uh, so I do spend some time. Some light reading? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I spend some time uh, looking through that. I really like the content. Uh, and the perspective that that particular set of publication. So a glass uh, of wine with, the you know, after the kids are in bed. Yeah, no, no glass of wine. So, uh, you know, I guess part of my routine is that I don't drink, gotcha. right? Ever? So, ever. No alcohol. Um, so I, I do have a lot of extra time on my hands. Um, Thanks,
0: that's great.
1: And then, you know, in the evenings, I'm obviously, when, when I am here, uh, I do try very hard to dedicate time to, uh, the family in the evening, uh, until the kids go, go to sleep, uh, because I do travel so much that I'll miss whole weeks, uh, out of the year. Um, so, so that's a big focus. Are you digital financial times
0: or do you get a physical copy? Digital. Okay. Very very sustainably oriented. And then, and then
1: I do use a lot of, uh, I I leverage LinkedIn quite a bit. Okay. Um, so, you know, the, the news articles and announcements that are coming out of coming out on that and. And you can kind of start to see dynamics that are happening in the market if yeah. you pay
0: close enough attention. Interesting. Um, and are so you, that's a are really Are you very curated tool. in who you follow on LinkedIn?
1: Yes, who I follow yes, as correct. far as leaders and yeah, organizations. The, that, the, absolutely. Right.
0: Or, I mean, are you looking at your newsfeed or are you going to specific uh, folks on LinkedIn and looking for what they're saying? Both. Okay. Both. Very interesting. You'll have yes. to share your list with me. Yep. And I'll do the same. All right. Where, if folks are so inclined, could they find you where obviously you're on LinkedIn a lot. So that's a, an answer. How could they yep. find more about eight rivers? Um,
1: our, our website
0: is mm-hmm. great. Um, yep. it's so InfinityRivers.com. the eight rivers.com
1: that's the number right.
0: eight rivers.com a
1: part. Another reason for the name is when you alphabetize uh, a list of companies, there you go. the eight always goes at the top. So, yeah. you know, it is a benefit, but yeah. no eight rivers.com is, is a good one. And, um, that site is more than just a website, right? It's, it's more curated now, right? We have blogs on there. We okay. have all our news announcements. We have details Wonderful. on our technologies. And so it's actually a really good tool to get to know us a bit.
0: Amazing. Well, let's end today with what I call bold prediction. And I hope that yours is going to be uh, more all-encompassing than some of the other answers I get from specifically renewable energy-focused leaders. And that is, if we look to 2050... And we're standing there, Damien and I, we're, we're old men, 2050, hopefully we're still alive. And, uh, and by, I, okay, maybe not old, but we're elderly. And yeah. we're looking back from 2050, we're shaking hands here at a bar in Durham. We're congratulating ourselves for hitting our net zero targets on, mm. you know, reducing emissions and saving the planet for our children. What did we get right? Yeah, so,
1: I mean, for myself, I hope to have been a part of an organization uh, in Eight Rivers that has caused more CO2 to be captured at that point than any other company on the face of the planet.
0: Mm, wow. Fantastic. And so, for
1: you, I hope that, that, that you have, have written the equivalent of Dan Jurgen's books on oil and gas for how the solar and wind industry developed. Amazing. And the dynamics and the geopolitical dynamics that caused shifts
0: uh, in, in that industry. Well, I can promise that if in 2050 that happened, it, would, it was because of this moment. Excellent. Damien Bochamp is the Chief Development Officer and President for Eight Rivers. I've had the luxury and privilege of hanging out with him in the Eight Rivers office here in Durham, North Carolina, where you should also come visit if you're ever in town. Damien, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks to your wonderful team for inviting us and for making this all possible. Yeah,
1: thank you to Suncast and yourself. It's been a good time.
0: Hey, you are watching all the way through to the end. I'm super grateful for you. Thank you for taking the time to lean in. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Damien. I hope also that because you're still watching, that means that you really like these in-person interviews. If you're watching us on YouTube, would you leave a comment in the description? Or if you're listening on the podcast, why don't you go over and subscribe to our YouTube channel or jump, jump over into LinkedIn and leave me a message as to what are your key takeaways? you think it's a little bit outside of the typical conversation that i might have or an entrepreneur that i might invite on to suncast and i would love to know if you'd like to hear and see more like this as always the notes and takeaways are over in the show notes at mysuncast.com there's a plethora of ways that you could engage with us there including sponsors which we're always grateful for because they help make this show free to you each and every week i want to thank those companies that have helped bring this message to you you can find out more at mindsuncast.com forward slash sponsor remember you are what you listen to i hope that you'll come listen to us once again next week thanks again for showing up solo warrior it's half the battle